Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A Living History Production. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Battle Walks, where we are walking the great battlefields of Europe. Well, a couple of departures this week from the normal uh, episodes that we do, because firstly, Pete Smith, my co-host, is busy leading tours on the battlefields. So he is busy out there actually walking the ground with customers and, and doing what he loves, which is getting out, walking the ground and showing those battlefields off. So he is very busy at the moment and not finding time to enter the recording studio. Um, so we have a special guest presenter and I'm going to introduce him now. It's David Howe. Dave, thanks very much for joining us. No worries. Thanks for having me on, man. It's a real pleasure, mate. And this is a little bit different. I said that on Battle Walks, we walk the great battlefields of Europe. Um, again, a departure. No Pete Smith, but also no Europe this time. We uh, A couple of months ago, we did the battlefield of Guadalcanal in the Pacific. And it, it just demonstrated that was one of our most popular episodes we've ever done. And it demonstrated that World War II and the Pacific War are hugely... Uh, important to people and a great topic of interest and so I wanted to revisit that and you are one of the best people to revisit that with because you are an absolute expert on Kokoda and the New Guinea campaign of the Second World War which is what we're going to talk about today. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about your story and how you came to be uh, this guru for all things Kokoda. Well I actually got into it by accident. I had been raised by my grandparents. My grandfather was a veteran of fighting in Papua New Guinea and he died when I was quite, I was 16 when he passed away. And I hadn't really thought much of it since then, but I had gone and walked Kokoda and I came back, had a good time, got to experience New Guinea, but I didn't really know a lot about the history. And it was through, I guess, walking, having in the back of my mind the stories that my grandfather had told me that got me involved with doing guiding at um, Concord, the old repatriation hospital in Sydney. And uh, they have the Kokoda Track Memorial Walkway. And it was through that association that I met 
a generation that I'd lost contact with, i.e. my grandfather's generation, that um, we got to take school kids around the memorial. I got to reconnect with veterans, people of my grandfather's era. I understood their jokes, understood their stories of growing up in the Great Depression. And uh, from there, I just started to um, immerse myself in the history. And then 62 treks across Kokoda later, countless interviews with veterans, countless immersion in um, this history. I guess here we are 80 years after the battle. And, um, you know, I've got um, got a, a whole weight of knowledge behind me, thanks to that uh, generation of um, World War II vets. And you were uh, you worked at the Shrine of Remembrance in Melbourne for a while as well, didn't you? I did. After I moved away from Sydney, I came in and I was still thirsty to continue, you know, guiding and um, taking people around um, war memorials, I guess. And I walked into the Shrine of Remembrance in Melbourne and what was going to be a volunteer job turned into a full-time job for five years where I worked, worked on the Galleries of Remembrance project, which um, prepared the National War Memorial of Victoria for the centenary um, commemorations. And much like me, mate, you've been able to turn this passion slash obsession into a career because uh, you uh, you run a, a very successful company that guides people across Kokoda, don't you? I do. And um, it was through these associations of meeting the veterans that I had the opportunity. This is going back to 2005, where I went back to New Guinea. I'd walked it the previous year. And this time when I went back, I didn't go back to walk it. I went back with veterans. We used helicopters and aircraft to try and get us out onto the battlefield. And... Um, uh, we, uh, you know, had this opportunity to, to connect with local people in the village, especially in the village of Kokoda. And I just happened to be there when one of the chaps that had walked with me the previous year was there. And that was the moment I thought, hey, with your ability to get people across the track and now my knowledge of the history, we could form a company. And that was 2005. And here we are, 2022. And as I said, 62 trips under my belt, plus countless people going to Kokoda, both on trekking and non-trekking, and to other unique places pertaining to Australian military history in Papua New Guinea. Well, we don't just go out to Australians. We have a lot of international listeners, and I should say that to an Australian audience, the concept of walking the Kokoda track is just a hallowed idea. We just we just know it inside and out. Probably It's probably up there with Anzac Day at Gallipoli as the most iconic thing to do in the sphere of remembering the Anzacs. But we should give a little bit of an overview for our international uh, visitors or international listeners about this concept of walking Kokoda, of hiking Kokoda. We're going to, in, in a minute, we're going to get into the history and we're going, to, we're going to do over several episodes that we're going to break the track down and describe what it's like to do it. But just talk to us a little bit, David, about this concept of trekking Kokoda, why people do it, who does it, and, and you know, what it means to, uh, to your Australian clients. I think for Australians... Um like Gallipoli and a place to go for a, a pilgrimage to uh, experience um, Anzac Day and to get closer to, um, you know, that our history, our wartime history, Kokoda has become a place that is also a focal point for that. But it has a unique crossover in the sense that unlike being on a bus, unlike, um, you know, uh, in my case, when I first went to Gallipoli, being on a boat and arriving Anzac Cove, to get to a lot of these places along the Kokoda Track, you have to, um, you know, unless you go over in a helicopter, you have to walk it. And it's a huge it's a huge undertaking for most people. And a lot of people that go and trek it, camping, going out in the great outdoors is not something that they do regularly. Sure, you get the people who do this as a, as a um, you know, a hobby or an interest, 
but and that's bushwalking and things like that. But for Kokoda to go and take this undertake this pilgrimage, you have to deprive yourself of you know not being able to lay on a lounge, not being able to go to the pub in the evening, all those sorts of things. So you are actually um, undertaking a true pilgrimage in the sense that through deprivation you're getting closer to um, you know to experiencing in a small way what the soldiers had done you know 80 years ago. What's the typical length of a trek across Kokoda? In terms of days, it's about nine days of actual uh, walking um, is what the average group um, takes to walk the track. We're talking, you know, they say 96 kilometres, but that's um, the way the crow flies. It's probably more like 130 kilometres. And, um, yeah, over nine days um, divided up to, you know, walk. Some days it's easier than others because some days you're climbing quite quite high and dropping down to creeks and going back up again and other days you're in the lower part where Kokoda is and you're uh, spending time looking at the memorials and looking at plaques and 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 where battles battles were fought so um yeah it's a it's got it's got all the hallmarks of a great adventure but also walking on hallowed ground to get closer to the Kokoda story I've heard it described as the world's toughest sea level trek would you agree with that assessment I guess for me, uh, yes, but also uh, I must say I've not really done a huge amount of uh, trekking in places that otherwise wouldn't be an Australian battlefield. I know that uh, people who come, because uh, we do get people that come just simply to do the walk and they don't know a lot about the history, hopefully at the end of it, that's my job to get them to know more about the history, but they come and do it because it's one of the, known as one of the great walks to do in the world. It's... Um... I, we hear all of this about the physical challenge. Is it is it as daunting as, as people would uh, would make out? I think sometimes people make it out to be much harder than what it actually is. I'm not suggesting that it's not hard, but what I would say, it's very achievable for uh, even person with just an average amount of fitness. With the right training, right preparation, and most importantly, the right mindset, it's something that, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very achievable. Well, this is, uh, we're going to make it extremely achievable uh, today and over the next several episodes because we're going to walk it in a virtual sense. Uh, so um, I think, why don't, you, why don't you give us just a, if you can, just a potted history, David. I know Kokoda <coughs> is a complicated campaign. There were many facets of it and there was a lot going on, a lot of people involved. But can you give us just over, you know, over a few minutes, just an overview of what was going on in New Guinea in 1942 that led to this fighting on the Kokoda track? Well, in essence... Um, where the Kokoda Track is situ- situated was in what was then known as the Territory of Papua, Australia's nearest neighbour. The Japanese um, already had attempted to take the capital of PNG, which is Port Moresby. They attempted that uh, with Operation MO. We, we know it as the Battle of the Coral Sea. That didn't work out well for the Japanese um, in trying to achieve their objective. That is the capture of Port Moresby. So the next step they did in order to be able to achieve that objective was to um, march on Port Moresby, if you will, by way of an overland track, which we now call the Kokoda Track, the Kokoda Trail. So, um, you know, you have this, um, I guess, uh, existing pathway because it was a mail routes that walked across. The Japanese had intelligence that they knew that there was a path from the northern beachheads across the mountain range into uh, Port Moresby. So, uh, yeah, I mean, they first attempted, as I said, by sea. Now they attempt to do it overland via the Kokoda Track. And there's two really distinct phases of the campaign. I mean, I know that's broken down into into dozens of different phases, but the two big distinct parts we look at 
is the Japanese advance and then the Australian sort of counter advance after that. Can you give us, give us a little bit of an overview of, of what the Japanese achieved and then what the Australians did in response? Yeah, so the first, indeed, the first phase was the um, Japanese had um, had it landed on the north coast of Papua at a place called Basaboa near Buna um, in, in July of 1942, on the 21st of July. So they push all the way along the flat country, which is around about 100 kilometres to the village of Kokoda. And on the way, they're met by um, Papuan Infantry Battalion and Australian Militia Soldiers of the 39th Battalion. So these militia guys are not our Australian Imperial Force guys who are yet to join the battle, but they put up a good fight against the Japanese, but nonetheless they get pushed up into the mountains and they fight a series of um, fighting withdrawal actions at different places along the Kokoda track as they keep getting pushed back until they're joined by the AIF. The Japanese continue to push the militia and the AIF back to the halfway point, they have another battle, they get pushed back again, and they're only two ridges away from being on the flat to get down to Port Moresby, and the Australians get reinforced by more AIF soldiers and some militia soldiers for that matter, and the tide has turned and they start to push the Japanese back all the way off the track and back to where they land where they have a series of um, three big battles that finally get rid of the Japanese from the territory of Papua in that area fighting on the Kokoda campaign. Well, that first phase you described of the, the Japanese advance, that's what we're going to walk today, and we're going to, um, to to break the Kokoda track down into several sections, which we're going to cover. Just before we get started, this has a hallowed place in Australian military history in terms of the Anzac legend. Where do you see Kokoda fitting in the, 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 the whole story of Australian military history? For me personally, I think Kokoda represents... Um, the shift, if you will, of Australia uh, fighting, uh, you know, battles and and the wars, if you will, over you know in far off distant lands, like obviously, you know, in France, Belgium, in Turkey, you know, in Gallipoli, uh, you know, fighting, I guess, for the British Empire, so to speak, where Kokoda represents, and Kokoda is not the only battle um, that this made up for this important time in Australia's history is when we shifted from having to fight for our survival much closer to home. So as opposed to a far off distant land, we're fighting not only much closer to home, but in the case of Kokoda, we're actually fighting on what was then, in essence, Australian soil. Well, let's walk it, mate. Let's uh, let's actually strap the boots on and put a pack on and, and get out there. <laughs> okay, so we're walking north to south. Where are we starting this trek and, and how are we getting there? So uh, we're starting our trek... Uh, really, when we land on a domestic flight at a place called Poppendetta, which is about 80 kilometres north of Kokoda Village. Okay, so we, we've flown to New Guinea and we've landed in Port Moresby and stayed there and and uh, got all our gear together. Now we're flying up. Um, I should also... We're not going to go into too much details of the specific of how you do the trek, but obviously you do it in conjunction with local people. We should absolutely throw that in, that um, we wouldn't be doing any of this without the assistance of local people, would we? No, we wouldn't. And, um, you know, I always say that, you know, my job really is to articulate the history, whereas the local Papuan porters and guides that come with us on the journey, and remembering it's their history as well, they're the real stars in this to help Australians or any tourist be able to navigate the jungles of New Guinea. So, David, we've landed in Poppendetta by light aircraft. What's the next phase of our adventure? We've met our, we meet our crew and we hop on the back of a PMV. PMV stands, basically stands for public motor vehicle, but in essence, we're getting in the back 
of an Isuzu truck, which has two wooden seats running along um, the, the tray on the back. It's got a, we've got a tarpaulin over the top of us around a frame, and we're setting off in the PMV heading to, on a very bumpy ride, to Kokoda. How long does that take us? It takes around about four hours. And so once we arrive at Kokoda, this is obviously an iconic part of the, uh, of the story. Give, give us an overview of, of what happened at Kokoda and then what we're going to see as we, as we begin our trek from this point. Well, along the way on the trip from Popendetta to Kokoda, we're stopping at Awala, which was the first place that um, the Papuan Infantry Battalion contacted the um, advancing Japanese. And the next major uh, landmark we are visiting is the mighty Kamusi River, in a place called Wairopi. Uh, this is a major water feature and it features heavily in both the Japanese advance and the Australian advance. And then we keep going on on our way to pass through two other areas, uh, Oivi and Gorari. And both these places feature uh, at the start and at the end of the campaign. In fact, one of the biggest battles fought towards the end. But at the start, the next contact which happened, and that was between the 39th Battalion uh, soldiers and um, the Japanese. And then we get to Kokoda Station. So tell us a little bit, a bit about Kokoda today and how does it compare to Kokoda in 1942? Well, up until very recently, it was pretty much untouched other than a few buildings and um, and the four memorials which are on the plateau. Uh, it, it, it remained pretty much un, unchanged. Um, now there has been some construction, so there are some new modern buildings going up, which is doing what Kokoda in essence has been since even before the war, and that is that it's the administrative hub of that particular uh, region. So it's now got um, um, some new buildings in, going in, but it still has uh, the same, um, uh, I guess, fall of ground, which looks down towards where the Japanese were advancing 80 years ago. And what, once we get to Kokoda, are we setting ourselves up there? Are we heading, are we heading straight out on the track? What are we doing next? So when, when we're at Kokoda, what we do is we have the boys uh, that are going to be on our trip get all the gear together. They get all the rations. They put it into um, areas of, um, of you know, the types of food, like whether it be rice, whether it be, um, you know, the, the um, uh, cooking oil and pots and pans and all that sort of stuff. And they divide it up to get into the um, porterage crew, if you will. And while that's going on, we're down at the um, Kokoda Plateau looking at the memorials, uh, visiting the Bert Kienzel uh, Museum and really setting the scene for what's about to be in front of us over the next eight or nine days. Well, tell us about those things. Tell us about the memorials we're looking at and, and the museum. And what, are we, uh, what are we experiencing? So on the Kokoda Plateau itself, and you can imagine the Kokoda Plateau is, is only um, you know around about, I think it's 80 metres high or something. It's not a huge plateau, but it's... On there, there are these wonderful memorials built out of river, big, large river stones, and they're painted white. They were put in uh, in the post-war years by Bert Kienzel, um, and he was, uh, you know, has been labelled the architect of Kokoda. He's the guy who lived in the territory before the war, and he organised all the what we call the Fuzzy Wuzzy Angels in the sense of all the um, carriers that worked for the Australians during the campaign. And in the post-war years, he put in these wonderful memorials and uh, in fact one of the memorials has this big uh, metal disc and the disc has got uh, a depicts a carrier uh, carrier crew carrying Australians on a stretcher and Bert Kienzel actually thought that that would and he offered the idea up to the government that that would be the stamp if you will in the medal to award 
the um, um, Papuan carriers. You also have a very unique um, um, memorial there. In fact, it's one of only two in the entire Kokoda Track which commemorates the Japanese participation in the, in the campaign. And looking at the memorial uh, has uh, written in Japanese on it, but it also has the barrel of a mountain gun. And that barrel was actually recovered by Bert Kingsall, but it has a, a story attached to it whereby the Japanese, withdrawing Japanese at this time, couldn't take the um, gun across the um, Kamusi River, so they buried it, and later on it's incorporated in this memorial. So the gun, if you will, has never left the battlefield. It's still there at Kokoda 80 years later. Did you say there's also a museum there at Kokoda? There is. There's a museum, and it's had it in over the years. There has been um, several different um, um, variations of the museum, but basically there is a, a quite a nice um, a building there with a, a skylight coming down with all these interpretive panels and big photos that have blown up hanging down from the ceiling depicting scenes mm. of the Kokoda campaign and it also has a um a uh, some artifacts if you will some uh, weapon systems that are off planes you can actually see the two barrels of the Lewis guns because the early soldiers that were facing the Japanese the militia guys were equipped with first world war um, weapons. So there's two Lewis gun barrels there. You'll find helmets, you'll find some bayonets, you'll find uh, Japanese knee mortars. And of course, uh, very interestingly, you'll find um, the what's left of pack saddles um, because the Japanese landed with a lot of horses to carry supplies and um, they're still there all in the museum. Haven't, again, these things haven't left the battle, battlefield. They're still pretty much very close to where they were left behind. Just on that subject, David, I haven't done Kokoda myself, but I've spent a lot of time in the Solomon Islands and artefacts from the fighting are part and parcel of the experience of visiting those battlefields. Is it the same at Kokoda? Are you finding during the trek relics and, 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 and tangible reminders of the fighting? All the time. It's almost like that the uh, jungle just uh, you know, reveals these lost long artefacts constantly. Every time I walk Kokoda, you'll find... Um, you know, artifacts um, that you didn't see last time. And they come from a variety of things. One, they've come out of the bush, literally. Um, you know, the jungle regurgitates it, if you will, the stuff that's buried under the ground. But more importantly, you also have, um, um, you know, we you have local people who are subsistent farmers. So a lot of the time they're, they're, they're burning um, the, 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 the foliage and they're uh, ploughing their fields and growing their crops. And as they do that in that pro- process... Uh, I guess you could liken a little bit to the iron harvest on the Western Front, except it's not done with heavy mechanical machinery. It's people, um, you know, slashing, burning, cultivating by hand. And, of course, as they do that, they find things like grenades. They find things like um, bullets or bullet casings. They find, you know, anything from collars off the mortar tubes to even Bren guns and, and, and Japanese woodpecker machine guns. You know, all these things are usually found by the local people and they put them in a pile and they put them in what they... I guess loosely call a museum, um, and um, a lot of uh, you know the people along the track would have their own little collection where they you know you pay a small fee and you can go and view all these artifacts that have come out of the jungle. Just extraordinary, mate. And before we uh, continue on the on the trek, is there is there anything else to see at Kokoda? I mean, the airstrip is a famous part of the history, and that uh, that still remains at Kokoda, doesn't it? It does indeed, and um, yes, it is worth noting because as I said, the plateau is not that high. Um, relatively speaking, for a plateau, it's quite low, but it is a high ground in, in, in that area. Of course, you've got this big mountain range behind you, but looking down off um, one side of the plateau, you can see the Kokoda airstrip. And although, and it's still a grass strip, and although it's been widened and lengthened, it's pretty much in the exact same spot as what it was 
during the war. In fact, there's a wonderful wartime photo of, of the strip where you can see the plateau and the airstrip. And if you looked at a modern day photo, other than a few buildings and that the airstrip's been lengthened, it's not really all that uh, different. In fact, um, you know, the, 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 the foliage, the kunai grass growing around it, um, the tracks that disappear off into the into the Owen Stanley mountain range are pretty much still there. And, you know, it's very, very close to how it was 80 years ago. And that was a real lifeline for the Allies during the war, wasn't it? When Kokoda was in Allied hands, being able to have an airstrip in the heart of the battlefield was essential for the for the fighting, wasn't it? Well, yes, and the first two battles of Kokoda really was a fight to control um, the Kokoda airstrip. And that's why Kokoda um, is... Um, you know, I guess the Kokoda campaign gets its name from that because without Kokoda being the main centre with the airstrip, it could have very well been called the Oivy campaign, if you like, which is the village that we would have come through on our way into Kokoda from coming north-south. But, you know, Kokoda, as I said, gives its name to it, but it has the airstrip. It's the seat of um, of the government, um, um, I guess, um, administration in that region at the time. And it is, as I said, fought over... Um, twice on the Japanese advance. So it has not only gives its name, but it is strategically important to both sides. So we've explored Kokoda, David, and seen all the sites there. Now we're going to begin trekking properly. Just to describe, when we say walking the Kokoda track at this stage, um, what are we seeing? What do we feel? What, just describe the, the scene for us as we, as we first set out on the track. Well, when we first set out from Kokoda, the most noticeable thing other than, you know, the humidity the smells, um, you know, there'd be um, people slashing and burning to grow their gardens. There'd be the smell of um, cooking. There'd be all those sorts of overload of um, of your senses happening. But the big thing that you couldn't help but notice is the towering mountains of the Owen Stanleys that are, um, you know, completely looking down on you. And um, it's almost a false sense of walking when you leave Kokoda because you're walking along a, what they call the tractor trail. And this is a a trail that you could drive a four-wheel drive so it's like a fire trail here in Australia and you start to walk along that at the base of the Owen Stanleys and it goes for several hours and you pass through um, some small villages you pass through the village of Cavello and you pass through the village of Hoy and then all of a sudden before you know it the tractor trail disappears you're on single track and you're faced with a big mountain that you're climbing up so it's almost for the first couple of hours of Kokoda it's you go oh this is I'm comfortable this isn't too bad after all and then bang, it hits you. And how do people go at that stage, that first height? Because I know it's a, it's a succession of going up and up and up, and then down and down and down. How's that? How does that first height affect people? Well, on the, you know, all of all of a sudden the reality kicks in because from going along, uh, the, uh, talking to one another, telling jokes, sometimes people flinging mud at one another. That you know, being jovial as as we can be. Um, all of a sudden they're out of breath so you can't be telling jokes you can't be skylarking you are head down bum up um, puffing and panting sweating uh, you know getting yourself going and getting your engine firing on all cylinders to try and climb up the hill and most people realize hang on a second we're not uh, (laughs) we're not in Kansas anymore Toto we are on the Kokoda track and we are um, we mean business and the track means business and a lot of people um, would really get this sense of okay we're in it now and as i said after driving from Poppendetta, getting to kokoda looking around very slow start then walking along a relatively flat fire trail and it just disappearing um, behind you and then bang straight up that mountain and you only have to look at a person's face to realize that hey we're in it now this is what it must have felt like for um young australian soldiers who had um 
otherwise not experienced this type of walking before. Going back to 1942, did the Japanese realise what they were getting themselves in for? Was this a re- was this a well planned campaign from the Japanese perspective? Did they have maps? Had they spoken to local people to know what they were going to face, or were they taken by surprise by the the harshness of the terrain? I think the to to really answer that question, I guess the first thing is, did the Japanese know? Um, they certainly did. They had reconnaissance. They had reconnaissance going back um, well. Uh, before the war where Port Moresby was and that there was this uh, mountain range. They were also uh, aided by um, uh, European, um, uh, uh, I guess, spy for want of a different uh, term, uh, had given them information because you have to understand that area around Kokoda in the pre-war years, uh, a lot of people had come to uh, find gold. That's the Yoda Valley and the Yora Valley was a, was a, um, a place that people would go off to go like they would in a lot of other places in New Guinea looking for gold. So the Japanese actually had um, had brought uh, Tolai, uh, so that's the native population of Rabaul because they'd sailed down from Rabaul, the capital of East New Britain, an island above uh, mainland PNG, and they had brought, um, I guess, local Tolai people who were able to then communicate with the Orokaiva people who were in that part of the world, plus they had some European assistance. So they knew um, that there was a mountain range. I think... It would also be safe to say, though, that whilst they knew about this major, you couldn't miss it, uh, even to fly over it, you couldn't miss that there was this huge uh, geographical feature in your way. I think what surprised both sides um, is that it was just getting into that type of warfare in that terrain would bog you down. And that's what happened to both sides. They got bogged down. And the third character... Um, in this is you know not you've got the Japanese and you've got the Australians and you've got the, the Papuans and the natives that are involved in the campaign but the other um, opponent if you will because there's an opponent on both sides it's your friend and it's your enemy and that's the um, mighty um, Owen Stanley's of the um, of the Kokoda track it's just an enormous um, mountain range that um, uh, yeah both sides are, uh, are familiar with it but they don't necessarily realise that the longer you spend in it the harder your campaign is going to be well, without wandering too far off track, quite literally and figuratively, um, again, the parallels with Gallipoli. It's, it's, it's really the same story for the Second World War, isn't it? It's one of the early campaigns. I mean, it's not the first campaign of the Second World War for Australians, but it's, it's an early campaign. We've got this idea of this sort of hurried, you know, hurried, urgent response to a threat. Um, and then we've got this idea that the terrain is as much an enemy as the, as, as, as the, the literal enemy you are fighting. So there, there are so many parallels with Gallipoli. So I can see why it, it, it sits prominently in the, in the Anzac story. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, we've got this um, major geographical feature. We have hurried attempt to uh, send our soldiers to meet this enemy and we also have the story playing out where you've got um you know the underdog i guess uh fighting uh what certainly up until that point in the second world war undefeated i mean the japanese had not been defeated on land at this point and um the first guys that are going up against a well uh you know battle experienced um um army uh, militia soldiers who have not yet seen fighting. Some some of their officers and senior NCOs had only a very small percent had seen uh, uh, fighting in the First World War. Another group had had been reinforced that had little experience fighting either at the fall of Rabaul or in the Middle East. But for the most part, the soldiers that fought first faced the Japanese uh, in the Owen Stanleys were young. Um, militia soldiers who had only done their training they'd never seen combat in their life in fact they didn't expect to see combat in the territory of Papua at that stage just extraordinary is it? You can see why it's such a heroic story. Well, speaking of heroics, uh, we're in the thick of it now, trekking along. So just describe to us as we're going along from Kokoda, what's the, what's the next major site we're going to come to on the track? The next major site we're going to come to is a, a, a place called Deniki. And um, uh, Deniki is uh, interesting, both from the campaign's point of view and both from you as uh, uh, someone undertaking the pilgrimage because when you get to Daniki, you appreciate we've walked along, we've left Kokoda now, we've, we've started to get into the guts of walking and the next big break where you're going to sit down and have an extend, extended stay is this um, campsite of Daniki. And Daniki, when you get there, you turn around, you look down and guess what you can see? You can see Kokoda Plateau and you can see the Kokoda Airstrip and it's very easy to put in perspective exactly what the Australians were doing. And the Australians, who had fought a battle at Kokoda to begin with, withdrew back up to Deniki, the high ground. They can look back on Kokoda, and then they go back down and retake Kokoda, and they hold Kokoda for a couple of days. And if you're a trekker, you've just, um, you know, busted your guts to get up there. You're having this extended break, and all of a sudden you turn around and you look down and you go, hang on, 
have I just really come this far? And it all starts to put it in perspective. You understand the relationship between the high ground and the mountains looking down to the low ground where your enemy may be. And what can we see at uh, Deniki today? At Deniki today, there's a couple of guest houses. Uh, these are huts made out of local um, bush materials, if you will. Uh, nice, clear, open spaces. There's actually a beautiful, picturesque part of the track. It's got a um, just around the corner from the huts. There's this water pipe that uh, comes out um, with this beautiful, fresh, clear water that everyone fills their water bottles up with. Um, but there's not a lot to see there in relation to the wartime Daniki because wartime Daniki actually sits just above where current day Daniki is. Because you have to imagine that a lot of the um, family groups that live on this land, because they're subsistence farming, their their villages, their huts, if you will, over time move move around in different spots within their land as they cultivate and as they grow their gardens. So, um, but you know, if you're there and you're looking down at Kokoda, you're pretty much seeing a very similar scene to what an Australian soldier would have seen 80 years ago when they're looking back down on where the Japanese are coming in hot pursuit behind you. When you arrive in these villages, David, what's the reception like from the local people? First thing you notice is the kids. Little kids will come running out with big smiles on their face. Um, you know, they usually have a bush knife or, um, or a stick or something that they've been... Uh, you know, using in the garden in the hand, but they come running out and they greet you. It's like this warm, welcoming. You know, who isn't going to get um, feel a sense of happiness and joy when a whole group of happy, smiling kids um, um, come running out to you? And you know, more times than not, someone in the group will pull out a tennis ball, they'll pull out a bag of lollies, they'll pull out some pens and pencils or something and give to the kids. And you just see. Um, you know, you didn't think their faces could get a bigger smile or light up anymore, but they just are overwhelmed by it, and they're just uh, so excited to see you. And I guess for the kids growing up in the villages, when they see us um, trekkers come through, they know, hey, there might be a treat or something special there, and um, and you know they'll start having a game. And especially if somebody's got a ball, you'll start throwing the tennis ball to the kids, and they'll all laugh and they'll all giggle and they'll run around, and it's just, um, you know, it's amazing, amazing experience to see that. It must be a great, uh, a great feeling after the, after the perils of trekking for several hours. People must it respond all, very strongly to that. It almost puts you into a full sense of oh, I've forgotten about the walking. It fades, it fades away, and you're living in the moment. And in fact, I think it highlights one of the biggest things about taking this particular um, pilgrimage is that when you have moments like that, the hardships melt away and um, you are living in the moment. We tend not to live in the moment so much in today's society, but when you're in places like Kokoda and walking on those battlefields that are, com- uh, that are combined with, um, you know, uh, a developing country, have their population in there who don't have TV, don't have all the distractions that we have of the modern world, as I said, you are simply left with living in the moment, which is a tremendous feeling. Just amazing, mate. And, and are we overnighting at Daniki or are we just staying there for a break? Well, as interesting point, we can overnight here at um, Deniki, but if you're feeling like you can uh, dig a little deeper, then we can do another uh, four-hour-odd stint climbing up some very steep hills until we get to the village of Isarava. Well, let's let's do that now. Describe that uh, that walk for us. Well, I think we're feeling pretty hardy so far on our on our <laughs> virtual trek. So let's uh, let's say goodbye to the local people of Deniki and, and push on. Indeed, and by now I would suggest we've all got our rhythm. We've all got started to find our pace, and usually the group 
uh, shakes out. In fact, people that you started walking with along the tractor trail may not be next to you. They might be behind you or they might be in front of you and you start walking along at your own pace and which is indeed what you have to do. So leaving Daniki behind us, as I said, there's that magnificent water pipe that has the crystal clear water coming through it. You can't help but take a drink or fill up your bottle. And then you're walking through. You're still in the mountains. You're still climbing, but there's these wonderful um, choco fields. So choco, uh, I guess everyone knows what a choco is, but instead of the actual fruit of the choco, um, they use the small baby shoots of the choco to make green spinach in fact we will have that for dinner uh, when we get to our night camp where they'll be part of the meal but there's these wonderful choco fields and you sort of cut through them and uh, you've got all trees around you but the canopy is open to allow these uh, crop to grow and as you're walking along you know you're walking under a gray underfoot is these gray hard sort of stones um, careful not to trip on them but you make your way through the um, um, choco with beautiful butterflies and um, if you're lucky some of the choco um, uh, will have flowers on they have these beautiful bell type yellow flowers and as we go uh, of course more distractions hopefully to take the mind off walking and perspiring and doing all that but then you'll be broken by crossing a, a you know a fairly not a wide creek but a fast flowing enough creek over a couple of um, long bridges and then having these two big big climbs to get you up right up into the um, into the mountain proper now as we make our way into the Isarava village. And what were the Australians experiencing as they fell back across this ground in 1942? I would say that um, the Australians that were withdrawing from Kokoda or withdrawing from Daniki so after the first two battles of Kokoda and they know that they have to withdraw Back, In fact, the commander of the 39th Battalion, Lieutenant Colonel Ralph Honor, had already identified the high ground of Isarava as being a place to dig in. And the accounts that I've read, the veterans that I've spoken to who left Kokoda in a hurry, you know, they could see this or they could see the smoke uh, in places. You could still sort of see a glimpse of Kokoda and the hue of the of the burning um, supplies and that that they destroyed to deny the Japanese as they make their way up into the jungles to dig in so they would have experienced um, uh, a hurried march I think the motivation of the Japanese and hot pursuit behind you would have been enough to get you up that um, up, the, up the hill and of course in 1942 you weren't doing it with wonderful um, you know uh, padded uh, soled shoes uh, and all the modern trekking equipment you had hard leather leather um, boots and you had webbing Backpacks that the sweat and the moisture of the um, of the jungle would have only contributed to it running and rubbing on your skin and chafing you and uh, I think um, you know it would have been a combination of um, being um, uh, you know deprived of the niceties of life but also the sense of urgency that you need to uh, make hightail it to get to the high ground to save yourself. David, just at this point, I think it would be a good idea to give us a concept of what does it mean fighting withdrawal? What what, what is actually happening from a battle point of view as the Australians are, are pulling back with the Japanese relentlessly pressing forward? Well, in this case, the fighting withdrawal really means that um, that you know the Australians, as I said, have had two battles at Kokoda, which uh, although they they held on, they weren't able to hold on long enough, and they have to withdraw back um, as they fight fight to save themselves if you will to withdraw back and to regain the initiative and that is to of course be on the high ground if you are on the high ground you can dominate your enemy you can I mean, it's pretty um easy to to um 
to contemplate that the fact that if you're on the high ground, your enemy's below you, then you've got an advantage. So Deniki, as we said before, overlooking Kokoda, high ground, but not a huge um, spot to be able to dig in and hold a battle. And as I said, Lieutenant Colonel Ralph Honor, who came to take over command of the 39th Battalion, who are the guys at this point in, in, in time, the ones really fighting the Japanese, they've gone up to a much wider area, being Isarava, which is higher, wider, easier, easier to defend. So a fighting withdrawal means that you know, they're basically um, having a go at the enemy, small skirmishing with the enemy in this case, um, withdrawing back, not so much because they're just um, running away, but they are making a conceded, uh, uh, you know, attempt to still take the fight to the enemy, but they're doing it on a ground of their choosing. So we're trekking on further, David. We've left Daniki behind us and now we're approaching probably one of the most significant battlefields, if not the most significant battlefield on the entire track. It's uh, Isurava. So tell us about about the approach. Tell us about uh, this significant part of the, uh, of the battlefield. Well, the first thing as we move into the, um, uh, to, to Isurava is that you're pretty much under canopy. The jungle is quite uh, thick in places. There's um, a creek um, that the locals call Blood Creek, um, and you cross that and you've got a bit of a climb until you punch your way through uh, the foliage, if you will, and then you come to this wonderful cleared space, which actually looks like, um, you know, it looks like a, a going into a, uh, into a parkland here in Australia. It's just very well maintained. It is an anomaly. All of a sudden there's an oasis, if you will, in the jungle. And the first thing that you notice when when you go in there is that um, other than how well maintained it is but you see these four granite pillars sticking up they're almost almost like um, I don't know images of Stonehenge images of um, um, you know Newgrange if you've ever been to to um, the Brunaboyne cultural area in Ireland these you know almost monolithic um, you know uh, uh, works of um, commemoration because that's what they are you know all of those things that are in the in the part of the human condition um, that we do to make significant uh, times in in history we, we mark them and um, these granite pillars that stick up out of the out of the um, ground and behind them you have the parting in the mountains which looks back down towards Kokoda the scene on itself if it was not even connected to an Australian battlefield, it would be enough for people to say, wow, this is magnificent. But when you think that you're standing there on an Australian battlefield with this magnificent monument, in fact, I've been to many battlefields around the world, but nothing um, comes close to standing there in the open area of the um, of the jungle, looking down towards Kokoda, seeing these four big granite pillars sticking out. And they're the pillars, of course, that have the words endurance, courage, mateship and sacrifice on them. So it's a, it's a humbling experience for any, any, anybody that comes, comes across that scene. And tell us what happened at the Battle of Isarava in 1942. So the, the Battle of Isarava, as I said before, as the Australians had made their fighting withdrawal back after the, the first two battles of Kokoda, the Battle of Taniki, they get there and they dig in. And these young militiamen, <clears throat> members of the 39th Battalion, mainly from, well, they were, they were from Victoria, they dig in and they are waiting for two things to happen. They're either waiting for the Japanese to come and overrun them or they're waiting for the AIF. So these are men men of the 2nd 14th Battalion and the 2nd 16th Battalion. They're waiting for them who have, by this stage, are marching 
coming from the opposite direction, marching from the Port Moresby end to reach them. After the Australians lose the airstrip, they can't reinforce by air anymore. All man and material have to be marched in. And of course, Sisarabas only a day's walk out of Kokoda, so they're still very close to um, the Kokoda end. The rest of the guys have had to go, you know, a five, six days march to get to them. So as I said, Isarava, in the spot where the memorial is, there was literally um, Australians digging in uh, across from where the memorial is up into the other side of the mountain, waiting for those two things to happen. Which one happens first? Either the Japanese come and overrun them, and at this stage in the campaign, they could have easily done that. They had the um, they had the numbers to do that, or they're waiting for the um, men of the um, AIF to come and join them. To, to, to And it is, in fact, in Australian history, it's the first time that I know of when the militia and the AIF stood shoulder to shoulder against an enemy. So I'm assuming from that that the, uh, the second scenario played out, that the AIF men got there in time. Um, tell us about the battle as it unfolded. Yeah, so indeed, um, after... Um, um, the 39th dig in uh, by now the Japanese are preparing to, for their attack but the, you're right the AIF do get there they do reinforce them at first they actually um, said to the 39th that you can you know be taken out of battle but because the 39th and I must say I should also add they had elements um, over on the other side on um, of the 53rd battalion which was a sister militia battalion of the 39th these guys um, you know were said you know by the IF you can you're out of battle now we're here to take over but um, of course uh, men like Ralph Honor knew that they were going up against a formidable enemy an enemy that's just um, you know chased the uh, chased the Australians out of Kokoda twice and he said no we're, we're happy we're going to stay here and we're going to fight alongside you so and that's what they did they took a gallant stand so met men of the 39th and the second 14th and the second 16th they took a gallant stand against that Japanese, who at this stage had um, established their beachheads where they came from on the north coast of, of Papua, and um, they had, um, as I said, captured Kokoda and its airfield, and they'd got their um, they'd, they'd got their um, organisation together, if you will, to start the main push, and that main push is to push the Australians off Kokoda and march on Port Moresby. So a lot of, um, a lot of um, things are going on, but... Uh, for the Australians that are dug in at Isarava, this is the stand, this is the place with the AAF and the militia to try and stop the Japanese in their tracks. So uh, there was a pretty big battle here and uh, eventually it resulted in the Aussies being, again, withdrawing under, under the face of heavy Japanese pressure. Um, I'm going to be a little bit controversial here because when we talk about history, we should always keep asking questions and try to paint an accurate picture. In recent years... So Isharava was always painted as this magnificent stand where they held off, you know, they were, the Australians were greatly outnumbered, but they managed to hold off the Japanese, uh, you know, long enough to cause some grievous losses. And then the Australians pulled back, uh, and, you know, keeping touch with the Japanese all the way. Some historians in recent years have, have looked at the records, particularly the Japanese records, and have reevaluated the the battle somewhat. Not the importance of the battle, but perhaps the tactics that were employed and have suggested that the Japanese probably didn't outnumber the Australians as much as we thought and that the fact that the Australians were allowed to withdraw was due to tactical mistakes by the Japanese. David, where do you stand on this, uh, you know, this reassessment of the Battle of Isarava? I definitely think that the work that has gone into understanding the Australian and the Japanese dispositions and their numbers, I'd say that we've got a greater understanding of that now. And I guess 
the the story is not um, uh, as plain to say that oh you know the Australians were outnumbered by this overwhelming force um, because we now know that um, that we actually have records which shows the amount of Japanese there and the amount of Australians there. But you're right. Um, if the battle had been so clear cut as legend put it, the Australians in um, essence would have not been able to withdraw they would have that's where it would have ended in fact um there's no question that um that the australians wouldn't have been able to then fight their next big battle which we'll come to in a, in a later episode which is the battle of brigade hill but they were able to not allowed i don't think allowed is the right word but rather they were able to maneuver themselves to be able to continue this fighting withdrawal i think it's also fair to say that from the japanese point of view um going back to what I said earlier about this other character, the mountains there, it probably wasn't um, as easily uh, won on their hand because they have to come up against this huge um, feature, which is um, the Owen Stanley Ranges. And when you're at Isarava, if we're picturing ourselves there looking at the memorial now where the battle battle un, uh, unfolded, you can see why it is very difficult if you were the enemy attacking a, a dug-in um, group of soldiers who were trying to fight you off you're literally coming up um and the, and the japanese were on the other side of the, the valley on the other side of the mountain there you're literally coming up this very steep incline with very close country very close jungle you can't really see too far in front of you remember if you're standing there now you're looking at a cleared set of land that's been turned into a memorial but it wasn't like that in its day it was um, um whilst there was a clearing where the village was it was much more heavily wooded more jungle and uh, you wouldn't have known exactly where your enemy is either side wouldn't have known where they were and there would have been confusion and there certainly would have been um this extra element where you can't maneuver as easily as what you could have or for the japanese in the point in case what they have done in prior campaigns that they'd done before getting to isarava so yeah i think um i think it's safe to say that it isn't exactly how legend had played it out but nonetheless um we can't diminish uh, the Australians, um, knowing that, uh, that okay, the battle was going to be lost, that they managed to manoeuvre enough to be able to continue the fighting withdrawing, which, as we'll see later, um, played to the Australian advantage. So fast-forwarding back to modern times, we've, we've trekked in, we've seen the memorial. Uh, what else are we doing at Isarava? Is this, is this our first overnight stop? Uh, yes. Uh, in, in, on, on the trip that you and I are on right now, Matt, this is our first afternoon. We've had a huge day coming up from Kokoda through Daniki, um, having, having lunch on the way, of course, uh, going through those choco fields and then coming to the beautiful Memorial of Isarava. And in this case in point, we've done a battlefield uh, tour of the battlefield of Isarava and we've camped there. But we're going to do something very, very special. And there's only a couple of points on the track where we where we do this, one is Brigade Hill and one is Isarava, and that is that regardless of whether it's Anzac Day or not, we're going to wake up in the morning, we're going to gather around those four pillars, and we're going to have a solemn service of remembrance to commemorate those that paid the ultimate sacrifice in the Battle of Isarava. Must be an absolutely extraordinary experience. I tell you what, Dave, we've <coughs> packed a lot into our first day. I mean, as I said, I've never done Kokoda. But uh, so I'm uh, with our listeners. I'm really enjoying this adventure as it unfolds. And geez, we've packed in a lot for our first day. I can tell you, Matt. You, unlike um, some other battlefields that I've gone to, we have literally packed a heap in there. You've all of a sudden been, you know, thrusted into uh, puffing and panning and dragging yourself up 
up um, a mountain after you've walked along the fire trail, you've had sensory overload with all the sights and smells and sounds of the jungle, you've um, bonded with your porter by now, so whoever's walking alongside you, one of the um, local fellows, you've hopefully spoken to them, they've opened up to you, they've told them a bit about their lives, so you've tried to pack all that into your memory and also along the way you've heard these stories unfold of Australian um, service and sacrifice and now you've come to this huge clearing in the mountains looking back down from once you walked and you're trying to you know picture in your mind the events that unfolded in August of 1942 when the Battle of Isarava happened and now you're going to all of a sudden you're exhausted you've had a sleep but you're going to get up and based with the knowledge that you have uh, in heard over the last you know, best part of 24 hours, you're going to be able to stand in silence and remember those guys. Uh, it's an amazing experience. And as you said, all packed into 24 hours. Sounds absolutely extraordinary. And I should say for the rest of this podcast, we're not going to do day by day. It's not going to be a nine a nine episode podcast. We are going to start compacting a little bit because obviously first day is very, very important. Just at this point, David, just so we're aware, give us a, give us a feeling of what it's like at the end of a day when you arrive at a campsite, what, what we do as trekkers uh, at the end of the day. Well, at the end of the day, uh, the first thing, especially if you're a smart trekker, and I would have already told you this beforehand, is that you want to do some personal admin. And that means, you know, your tent will be set up. Uh, you want to unpack your bag. You want to get out of those um, uh, trekking clothes, which you're going to wear again the next day. But for the most part, you're going to get out of those, have a rest from them, get out of your boots. Very important. Get out of your boots. Put on, um, you know, thongs or crocs or those sorts of things. And of course, have a have a shower, have a tub, have a wash at Isarava at the campsite there. There's a um, there are actually shower heads there, but obviously don't expect hot water. It's just the pipe coming from a fast flowing creek. But you get in there, get yourself cleaned up, get into your um, clothes for the for the for the evening, and um, hopefully as you um, decide to uh, go back towards your tent, uh, slipping in your thongs in the on the on the uh, moist uh, grass, um, you'll be met with a big bowl of popcorn and sit down and. Um, uh, finally be able to relax and talk to your fellow trekkers about the um, about the day that's just unfolded. And you're right, this part of the trek, we've spent a bit of time, Kokoda up to Isarava, but because the way that we're walking north-south, a lot of things happen um, in this particular area. And as we said, huge amount to take in, huge amount. I don't know anyone that's that, that's done it that hasn't uh, had this uh you know, enormous sense of wow! Like what just happened? I just went through the, I just went through the spin dry cycle on the washing machine, and here I am. Wow! Look at all this that we've just taken in today. It's a, it's a, it's a um, almost, um, as I said, overwhelming um, sensation. Well, as we know, an army marches on its stomach, and so does a trekking group. Uh, what are, what are we having for dinner? Well, I actually quite like the evening meals, and the reason I do is because um, we've got. I've got to give a shout out to a chap, Gibes, who is just a, an amazing. Uh, fellow when it comes to cooking and um, tonight I'm I'm suggesting that we're going to have Gibes uh, chicken stew obviously if you don't eat chicken there could be something else but Gibes chicken stew is amazing um, obviously one of the staple parts of um, your meal at night is going to be rice because it's a staple part of the diet that they supplement in PNG but we have rice so imagine a big bowl of freshly cooked rice and then you've got Gibes chicken stew which he um we have uh, what they call backcountry meals, freeze-dried chicken. It's actually a, a product made in New Zealand. Um, the big uh, industrial-sized bags of the of the dehydrated chicken, because obviously you can't take fresh, carry fresh meat in the jungle. But that's only one ingredient to it. The rest of the ingredients is 
wonderful. Remember the choco fields that we just walked through? You're going to have the baby choco um, um, shoots in there. A lot of the um, stuff that they grow in the gardens up there consists of varieties of potatoes, so sweet potato. So Gives would have already got that during the day. He's put that in there. He's made this wonderful stew with it all. And it's warm, it's hot, it's delicious, and you deserve it because you've just climbed all the way from Kikoda up to Isarava. Are we sitting around a campfire, David, or what's the what's the what's the setup? I'm glad you bring that up because that is also one of my favourite parts of the evening. Because you're indeed correct, we're sitting around the the jungle would have cooled, so everyone thinks, "Oh, we're in um, in the tropics; it must be hot." Yeah, it is hot, especially in the in the um, uh, d- closer down where Kokoda and, and and different parts of the trek it'll be at different temperatures. It's been there in the evening; it doesn't take long for the temperature to drop and you too to drop and it's nice your temperature to drop so it's nice to sit around after you shower around the campfire and enjoy your meal and enjoy my pleasure which is to sit there and do a campfire yarn and usually the talk is about not just um, what you've done that day and what's going on back home and all that sort of stuff but people often turn their attention to what it must have been like to be what were the soldiers talking about 80 years ago what was in their minds, what would they have thought? You're thinking about what's going on at home, but imagine what they would have thought was going on back in their homes in, in this case, Victoria or Sydney or places like that. What was going on? They would have done a very similar thing. So it really brings out that almost lost part of Australia, and that is the campfire yarn, and I love it. It's fantastic. Well, David, it's been absolutely extraordinary. I think that's a good spot to end it there, and uh, we can... uh pick this up in our, our next episode and, and carry on the trek as i said the first day we do a lot so we've uh, we've only done one day of our nine day adventure <laughs> we're going to com- we're going to we're going to compact it a little more into only a couple of other episodes so that we can actually get the whole thing done but it's it's been really extraordinary mate and as i said i've not having done it i will absolutely do it in the future with you but not having done it i've, I've enjoyed this journey as, as much as i'm sure our listeners are because it's just uh, and the thing about this that i've only just realized as we're doing it is there's been so much written about kokoda and so much said about it and documentaries and all sorts of things, but we're bringing it to life here, the feelings, experiences, the sights, the sounds, the smells. What a wonderful way it is to to to, to study Kokoda by doing it in this virtual sense. So, mate, it's been extraordinary. Thank you so much. Well, thanks to you, man. It's been wonderful. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited-edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member. For a small monthly fee, you can subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.